Volume Two, Section Thirteen of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte, by Elizabeth Claghorn Gaskell, Volume Two, Section Thirteen, Chapter Ten, Part One. Soon after she returned home, her friend paid her a visit. While she stayed at Haworth, Miss Bronte wrote the letter from which the following extract is taken. The strong sense and right feeling displayed in it, on the subject of friendship, sufficiently account for the constancy of affection which Miss Bronte earned from all those who once became her friends. To W. S. Williams, Esquire, July twenty-first, 1851 I could not help wondering whether Cornhill will ever change for me, as Oxford has changed for you. I have some pleasant associations connected with it now. Will these alter their character some day? Perhaps they may, though I have faith to the contrary, because I think I do not exaggerate my partialities. I think I take faults along with excellencies, blemishes together with beauties and besides in the matter of friendship i have observed that disappointment here arises chiefly not from liking our friends too well or thinking of them too highly but rather from an overestimate of their liking for and opinion of us and that if we guard ourselves with sufficient scrupulousness of care from error in this direction and can be content and even happy to give more affection than we receive can make just comparison of circumstances, and be severely accurate in drawing inferences thence, and never let self-love blind our eyes. I think we may manage to get through life with consistency and constancy, unembittered by that misanthropy which springs from revulsions of feeling. All this sounds a little metaphysical, but it is good sense if you consider it. The moral of it is, that if we would build on a sure foundation in friendship, we must love our friends for their sakes rather than for our own. We must look at their truth to themselves, full as much as their truth to us. In the latter case, every wound to self-love would be a cause of coldness. In the former, only some painful change in the friend's character and disposition some fearful breach in his allegiance to his better self could alienate the heart how interesting your old maiden cousin's gossip about your parents must have been to you and how gratifying to find that the reminiscence turned on none but pleasant facts and characteristics life must indeed be slow in that little decaying hamlet amongst the chalk hills after all Depend upon it, it is better to be worn out with work in a thronged community than to perish of inaction in a stagnant solitude. Take this truth into consideration whenever you get tired of work and bustle. I received a letter from her a little later than this, and though there is reference throughout to what I must have said in writing to her, all that it called forth in reply is so peculiarly characteristic that I cannot prevail upon myself to pass it over without a few extracts. Hayworth, August 6, 1851 
My dear Mrs. Gaskell, I was too much pleased with your letter, when I got it at last, to feel disposed to murmur now about the delay. About a fortnight ago I received a letter from Miss Martineau, also a long letter, and treating precisely the same subjects on which yours dwelt, b. The Exhibition and Thackeray's Last Lecture. It was interesting, mentally, to place the two documents side by side, to study the two aspects of mind, to view alternately the same scene through two mediums. Full striking was the difference, and the more striking because it was not the rough contrast of good and evil, but the more subtle opposition, the more delicate diversity of different kinds of good. The excellences of one nature resembled, I thought, that of some sovereign medicine, harsh perhaps to the taste, but potent to invigorate. The good of the other seemed more akin to the nourishing efficacy of our daily bread. It is not bitter, it is not lusciously sweet, it pleases without flattering the palate, it sustains without forcing the strength. I very much agree with you in all you say. For the sake of variety, I could almost wish that the concord of opinion were less complete. To begin with Trafalgar Square, my taste goes with yours and Meta's completely on this point. I have always thought it a fine sight, and sight also. The view from the summit of those steps has ever struck me as grand and imposing Nelson Column included, the fountains I could dispense with. With respect also to the Crystal Palace, my thoughts are precisely yours. Then I feel sure you speak justly of Thackeray's lecture. You do well to set aside odious comparisons, and to wax impatient of that trite twaddle about nothing newness, a jargon which simply proves, in those who habitually use it, a coarse and feeble faculty of appreciation, an inability to discern the relative value of originality and novelty, a lack of that refined perception which, dispensing with the stimulus of an ever-new subject, can derive sufficiency of pleasure from freshness of treatment. To such critics the prime of a summer morning would bring no delight. Wholly occupied with railing at their cook for not having provided a novel and piquant breakfast dish they would remain insensible to such influences as lie in sunrise dew and breeze therein would be nothing new is it mr family experience which has influenced your feelings about the catholics i own i cannot be sorry for this commencing change good people very good people i doubt not there are amongst the romanists but the system is not one which would have such sympathy as yours look at popery taking off the mask in naples i have read the saint's tragedy as a work of art it seems to me far superior to either alton locke or yeast faulty it may be crude and unequal yet there are portions where some of the deep cores of human nature are swept with a hand which is strong even while it falters we see throughout i think that elizabeth has not and never had a mind perfectly sane 
from the time that she was what she herself in the exaggeration of her humility calls an idiot girl to the hour when she lay moaning in visions on her dying bed a slight craze runs through her whole existence this is good this is true a sound mind a healthy intellect would have dashed the priest's power to the wall would have defended her natural affections from his grasp as a lioness defends her young would have been as true to husband and children as your leal-hearted little maggie was to her frank only a mind weak with some fatal flaw could have been influenced as was this poor saint's but what anguish what struggles seldom do i cry over books but here my eyes rained as i read when elizabeth turns her face to the wall i stopped there needed no more deep truths are touched on in this tragedy touched on not fully elicited truths that stir a peculiar pity a compassion hot with wrath and bitter with pain this is no poet's dream we know that such things have been done that minds have been thus subjugated and lives thus laid waste remember me kindly and respectfully to mr gaskell and though i have not seen marianne i must beg to include her in the love i send the others could you manage to convey a small kiss to that dear but dangerous little person julia she surreptitiously possessed herself of a minute fraction of my heart which has been missing ever since i saw her believe me sincerely and affectionately yours c brontë the reference which she makes at the end of this letter is to my youngest little girl between whom and her a strong mutual attraction existed the child would steal her little hand into miss brontë's scarcely larger one and each took pleasure in this apparently unobserved caress yet once when i told julia to take and show her the way to some room in the house miss brontë shrunk back do not bid her do anything for me she said it has been so sweet hitherto to have her rendering her little kindnesses spontaneously as illustrating her feelings with regard to children i may give what she says ill another of her letters to me whenever i see florence and julia again i shall feel like a fond but bashful suitor who views at a distance the fair personage to whom in his clownish awe he dare not risk a near approach such is the clearest idea i can give you of my feelings towards children i like but to whom i am a stranger and to what children am i not a stranger they seem to me little wonders their talk their ways are all matter of half admiring half puzzled speculation the following is part of a long letter which i received from her dated september twentieth eighteen fifty one beautiful are those sentences out of james martineau's sermons some of them gems most pure and genuine ideas deeply conceived finely expressed i should like much to see his review of his sister's book of all the articles respecting which you question me i have seen none except that notable one in the westminster on the emancipation of women 
but why are you and i to think perhaps i should rather say to feel so exactly alike on some points that there can be no discussion between us your words on this paper express my thoughts well argued it is clear logical but vast is the hiatus of omission harsh the consequent jar on every finer chord of the soul what is this hiatus i think i know and knowing i will venture to say i think the writer forgets there is such a thing as self-sacrificing love and disinterested devotion when i first read the paper i thought it was the work of a powerful-minded clear-headed woman who had a hard jealous heart muscles of iron and nerves of bend leather of a woman who longed for power and had never felt affection readers note bend in yorkshire is strong ox leather to many women affection is sweet and power conquered indifferent though we all like influence one i believe j s mill would make a hard dry dismal world of it and yet he speaks admirable sense through a great portion of his article especially when he says that if there be a natural unfitness in women for men's employment there is no need to make laws on the subject leave all careers open let them try those who ought to succeed will succeed or at least will have a fair chance the incapable will fall back into their right place he likewise disposes of the maternity question very neatly in short j s mill's head is i dare say very good but i feel disposed to scorn his heart you are right when you say that there is a large margin in human nature over which the logicians have no dominion glad am i that it is so i send by this post ruskin's stones of venice and i hope you and meta will find passages in it that will please you some parts would be dry and technical were it not for the character the marked individuality which pervades every page i wish marian had come to speak to me at the lecture it would have given me such pleasure what you say of that small sprite julia amuses me much i believe you don't know that she has a great deal of her mamma's nature modified in her yet i think you will find she has as she grows up will it not be a great mistake if mr thackeray should deliver his lectures at manchester under such circumstances and conditions as will exclude people like you and mr gaskell from the number of his audience i thought his london plan too narrow charles dickens would not thus limit his sphere of action you charge me to write about myself what can i say on that precious topic my health is pretty good my spirits are not always alike nothing happens to me i hope and expect little in this world and am thankful that i do not despond and suffer more thank you for inquiring after our old servant she is pretty well the little shawl etc pleased her much papa likewise i am glad to say is pretty well with his and my kindest regards to you and mr gaskell believe me sincerely and affectionately yours c bronte before the autumn was far advanced the usual effects of her solitary life and of the unhealthy situation of haworth parsonage 
began to appear in the form of sick headaches and miserable, starting, wakeful nights. She does not dwell on this in her letters, but there is an absence of all cheerfulness of tone, and an occasional sentence forced out of her, which imply far more than many words could say. There was illness all through the parsonage household, taking its accustomed forms of lingering influenza and low fever. She herself was outwardly the strongest of the family, and all domestic exertion fell for a time upon her shoulders. To W. S. Williams, Esquire, September 26th. As I laid down your letter, after reading with interest the graphic account it gives of a very striking scene, I could not help feeling with renewed force a truth, trite enough, yet ever impressive, viz., that it is good to be attracted out of ourselves, to be forced to take a near view of the sufferings, the privations, the efforts, the difficulties of others. If we ourselves live in fullness of content, it is well to be reminded that thousands of our fellow-creatures undergo a different lot. It is well to have a sleepy sympathies excited, and lethargic selfishness shaken up. If, on the other hand, we be contending with the special grief, the intimate trial, the peculiar bitterness with which God has seen fit to mingle our own cup of existence, it is very good to know that our overcast lot is not singular. It stills the repining word and thought. It rouses the flagging strength, to have it vividly set before us that there are countless afflictions in the world, each perhaps rivaling, some surpassing, the private pain over which we are too prone exclusively to sorrow. All those crowded immigrants had their troubles, their untoward causes of banishment. You, the looker-on, had your wishes and regrets, your anxieties, alloying your home happiness and domestic bliss, and the parallel might be pursued further, and still it would be true, still the same, a thorn in the flesh for each, some burden, some conflict for all. How far the state of things is susceptible of amelioration from changes in public institutions, alterations in national habits, may and ought to be earnestly considered but this is a problem not easily solved. The evils, as you point them out, are great, real, and most obvious. The remedy is obscure and vague. Yet for such difficulties as spring from over-competition, immigration must be good. The new life in a new country must give a new lease of hope. The wider field, less thickly peopled, must open a new path for endeavor. But I always think great physical powers of exertion and endurance ought to accompany such a step. I am truly glad to hear that an original writer has fallen in your way. Originality is the pearl of great price in literature, the rarest, the most precious claim by which an author can be recommended. Are not your publishing prospects for the coming season tolerably rich and satisfactory? you inquire after Currer-Bell. It seems to me that the absence of his name from your list of announcements will leave no blank, 
and that he may at least spare himself the disquietude of thinking he is wanted when it is certainly not his lot to appear perhaps curer bell has his secret moan about these matters but if so he will keep it to himself it is an affair about which no words need be wasted for no words can make a change it is between him and his position his faculties and his fate my husband and i were anxious that she should pay us a visit before the winter had set completely in and she thus wrote declining our invitation november sixth if anybody would tempt me from home you would but just now from home i must not will not go i feel greatly better at present than i did three weeks ago for a month or six weeks about the equinox autumnal or vernal is a period of the year which i have noticed strangely tries me sometimes the strain falls on the mental sometimes on the physical part of me i am ill with neuralgic headache and i am ground to the dust with deep dejection of spirits not however such dejection but i can keep it to myself that weary time has i think and trust got over for this year it was the anniversary of my poor brother's death and of my sister's failing health i need say no more as to running away from home every time i have a battle of this sort to fight it would not do besides the weird would follow as to shaking it off that cannot be i have declined to go to mrs to miss martineau and now i decline to go to you but listen do not think that i throw your kindness away or that it fails of doing the good you desire on the contrary the feeling expressed in your letter proved by your invitation goes right home where you would have it go and heals as you would have it to heal your description of frederica bremer tallies exactly with one i read somewhere in i know not what book i laughed out when i got to the mention of frederica's special accomplishment given by you with a distinct simplicity that to my taste is what the french would call impayable where do you find the foreigner who is without some little drawback of this description it is a pity a visit from miss wooler at this period did miss brontë much good for the time she speaks of her guest company as being very pleasant like good wine both to her father and to herself but miss wooler could not remain with her long and then again the monotony of her life returned upon her in all its force the only events of her days and weeks consisting in the small changes which occasionally letters brought it must be remembered that her health was often such as to prevent her stirring out of the house in inclement or wintry weather she was liable to sore throat and depressing pain at the chest and difficulty of breathing on the least exposure to cold a letter from her late visitor touched and gratified her much it was simply expressive of gratitude for attention and kindness shown to her but it wound up by saying that she had not for many years experienced so much enjoyment as during the ten days passed at hayworth this little sentence called out a wholesome sensation of modest pleasure in miss brontë's mind and she says it did me good 
I find in a letter to a distant friend, written about this time, a retrospect of her visit to London. It is too ample to be considered as a mere repetition of what she had said before, and besides, it shows that her first impressions of what she saw and heard were not crude and transitory, but stood the test of time and afterthought. I spent a few weeks in town last summer, as you have heard, and was much interested by many things. I heard and saw there, what now chiefly dwells in my memory, are Mr. Thackeray's lectures, Mademoiselle Raquel's acting, Diabounier's, Melville's, and Maurice's preaching, and the Crystal Palace. Mr. Thackeray's lectures you will have seen mentioned and commented on in the papers. They were very interesting. I could not always coincide with the sentiments expressed or the opinions broached, but I admired the gentlemanlike ease, the quiet humor, the taste, the talent, the simplicity, and the originality of the lecturer. Raquel's acting transfixed me with wonder, enchained me with interest, and thrilled me with horror. The tremendous force with which she expresses the very worst passions in their strongest essence forms an exhibition as exciting as the bullfights of Spain and the gladiatorial combats of old Rome, and, it seemed to me, not one whit more moral than these poison stimulants to popular ferocity. It is scarce a human nature that she shows you. It is something wilder and worse. The feelings and fury of a fiend. The great gift of genius she undoubtedly has, but I fear she rather abuses it than turns it to good account. With all the three preachers, I was greatly pleased. Melville seemed to me the most eloquent. Maurice, the most in earnest. Had I the choice, it is Maurice whose ministry I should frequent. On the Crystal Palace I need not comment. You must already have heard too much of it. It struck me at the first with only a vague sort of wonder and admiration, but having one day the privilege of going over it in company with an eminent countryman of yours, Sir David Brewster, and hearing in his friendly Scotch accent his lucid explanation of many things that had been to me before a sealed book, I began a little better to comprehend it, or at least a small part of it. Whether its final results will equal expectation, I know not. Her increasing indisposition subdued her at last, in spite of all her efforts of reason and will. She tried to forget oppressive recollections in writing. Her publishers were importunate for a new book from her. The yet was begun, but she lacked power to continue it. It is not at all likely, she says, that my book will be ready at the time you mention. If my health is spared, I shall get on with it as fast as it is consistent with its being done. If not well, yet as well as I can do it. Not one whit faster. When the mood leaves me, it has left me now, without vouchsafing so much as a word or a message when it will return. I put by the MS, and wait till it comes back again. God knows I sometimes have to wait long, very long, it seems to me. Meantime, if I might make a request to you, it would be this. Please to say nothing about my book till it is written, 
and in your hands. You may not like it. I am not myself elated with it as far as it has gone. And authors, you need not be told, are always tenderly indulgent, even blindly partial to their own. Even if it should turn out reasonably well, still I regard it as ruin to the prosperity of an ephemeral book like a novel to be much talked of beforehand, as if it were something great. People are apt to conceive, or at least to profess, exaggerated expectation, such as no performance can realize. Then ensue disappointment, and the due revenge, detraction, and failure. If when I write I were to think of the critics who, I know, are waiting for Cur Bell, ready to break all his bones, or ever he comes to the bottom of the den, my hand would fall paralyzed on my desk. However, I can do my best, and then muffle my head in the mantle of patience, and sit down at her feet and wait. The mood here spoken of did not go off. It had a physical origin. Indigestion, nausea, headache, sleeplessness, all combined to produce miserable depression of spirits. A little event which occurred about this time did not tend to cheer her. It was the death of poor old faithful keeper, Emily's dog. He had come to the parsonage in the fierce strength of his youth. Sullen and ferocious, he had met with his master in the indomitable Emily. Like most dogs of his kind, he feared, respected, and deeply loved her, who subdued him. He had mourned her with the pathetic fidelity of his nature, falling into old age after her death. And now her surviving sister wrote, Poor old keeper, died last Monday morning, after being ill one night. He went gently to sleep. We laid his old faithful head in the garden. Flossie, the fat curly-haired dog, is dull and misses him. There was something very sad in losing the old dog, yet I am glad he met a natural fate. People kept thinking he ought to be put away, which neither Papa nor I like to think of. End of chapter 10 Part 1 End of section 13